Okay, we're in Hosea chapter 8, and we pick up at verse 5 here this evening. Uh, We looked at the first four verses last time. We didn't get very far last time. But uh, we said this eighth chapter is where God uh, really sets forth the alarm to warn of the judgment that is coming on Israel. And he lays out his bill of charges against them in this chapter specifically. There are four things that he says about Israel that he's going to bring judgment for. And uh, we know the whole theme of this book, of course, is that uh, Israel is pictured as the unfaithful wife of Jehovah. That's the way the book is introduced with uh, Hosea and Gomer as a type of God and Israel. And Israel is unfaithful to God. And so we have the bill of particulars in this chapter of the things that have that Israel has done that are the reasons for judgment. And the first one we saw there in verse 1, at the end of the verse, they transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. And he's speaking there, of course, of the law, the covenant that was given at Sinai. And the picture there, or the relation to the picture of the unfaithful wife is significant because uh, in that day, a marriage was thought of as a covenant. And Israel had made a covenant with Jehovah. They had, at Mount Sinai, promised that they would keep his law. Well, he'd kept his end of the bargain, but they hadn't kept theirs. And as a matter of fact, he had put up with them for a lot longer than he was required to do by the covenant. He'd shown a lot of grace in letting them go this far. But uh, they hadn't obeyed. And it said there in verse 2, Israel shall cry unto me, my God, we know thee. And we talked last week about how sad that is. There were people in Israel that apparently thought that they really did know God. But they didn't. They'd been misled by all these years of false religion that had uh, crept in there into the northern kingdom. So they didn't really know him. And uh, then it said in verse 3 and verse 4, Israel hath cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. Uh, They have made princes, and I knew it not. And we stopped there last time. We need to pick up the end of verse 4 actually this time. But the second charge they made, that God made against them, the first was they had transgressed the covenant. The second was that they had made their own kings. They had uh, introduced kings that God hadn't given them. Now, we talked about before how God, uh, it wasn't actually God's idea for Israel to have a king in the first place. He had prophesied that they would eventually want a king. But it wasn't his idea, and they begged for a king, and God finally relented and gave them a king. He gave them Saul first, and then he took the kingdom away from Saul because of his disobedience. Then he gave them David, and David's sons were to be the rightful kings of Israel from that time on. But in the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, they had rejected the son of David as their king. And uh, so they had made their own kings made princes that weren't from God. And so that's his second complaint against them. They have chosen someone other than the one he had ordained to govern them. And like we said last week, that's something that ought to make us think a great deal about our politics, shouldn't it? Have we chosen the people that God would want to be in office? Or did we set up kings and princes on our own? And then we come to the third complaint at the end of verse 4. It says, of their silver and their gold have they made them idols that they may be cut off. And uh, and in a very real sense, this is probably the greatest complaint of all. They had made idols. They hadn't worshipped God. The very origin of the northern kingdom with that man Jeroboam, who was the first king, was as one of his first steps of policy to create centers of idol worship in the north and the south of the territory that he ruled so that the people wouldn't be tempted to go back up to Jerusalem where they were supposed to worship. And uh, so he made these golden calves. And it's it's interesting how these uh, motifs, I guess you might call them, resonate down through the Bible all the way back at Mount Sinai when God had first given them the covenant and Aaron made an idol. What was it? It was a golden calf. Yeah. You've ever looked at it? I find it fascinating to see what they dig up in the desert. But it was like a small cabin and it had like 
like a U-shaped thing over head. There was like a shield or something in the middle. Yeah. And I just always have pictured that they wanted something like what they saw in Egypt. Right. Yeah. And, and that and that is right. They 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 went back to their familiarity with things that were uh, a matter of rebellion against God. And what we're going to see a little bit in this chapter, but especially in the next one, is a whole lot of the problem is the influence that comes in from other nations around them. First, it's Egypt, and we're going to get back to talking about Egypt in the next chapter. In this chapter, we're going to talk some about how what other nations around them have done that they started to try to adopt what other kingdoms had done. And the, the calf was, a, was an important figure in a lot of different idol systems in, uh, in the Middle East in ancient times. It was very much connected with the worship of Baal in particular. But it's not too hard to figure out why the, the calf would be an image that would be appealing to them. Uh, a, lot of those old, for, a lot of those old pagan rites had to do with fertility, and so a calf or any kind of a newborn, a young animal, was a powerful image of that. They thought they could worship that, and God would bless them with calves. And, of course, um, out of all the animal that were used for livestock or used for meat, uh, cattle were sort of at the apex of that, right? Because, uh, in, in, in my opinion at least, beef is the king of meat. Right? It's, it's better than anything else. I, a lot of other preachers make fun of me because if we go to a homecoming dinner and there's a plate of fried chicken and a plate of meatloaf, I'll get the meatloaf and they tell me I'm probably not really right with God because preachers <laughs> <laughs> because preachers famously love chicken. But I'd rather have the meatloaf because beef is the king. <laughs> and, and as I've said before, you'll notice that when the prodigal son came home, they didn't kill a fatted chicken. <laughs> they, got, they went and got a calf <laughs> because beef is special. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Cattle, uh, cattle in that day meant money, meant prosperity. Uh, it meant that you're doing very well. And so that would have been something that they they used pretty prominently in their idol worship. Well, they had made this image of gold. And uh, you remember the story in Aaron's day when Moses uh, began to inquire about it. Aaron famously indicated that they just threw all their earrings in the fire and the calf jumped out, you know, on its own. Uh which is ludicrous on more counts than the obvious one. The obvious one being that obviously a golden calf's not going to just jump out of a fire. But but it's the other thing that's ludicrous about it is that it doesn't answer at all the question of why they put all their earrings in the fire to begin with. Right? It's obvious that they were trying to do something with that, and they were trying to create something to uh, engage in idol worship. Well, when Jeroboam uh, comes along, he revives that, tradition of using a golden calf. Now, like we said before, he doesn't actually seem to have been worshiping Baal. Uh, that doesn't seem to have come back around from what we can tell from the scripture until Ahab came along and and Jezebel dragged that all back in because she came from a, a nation that worshiped Baal. But it remained a powerful image. And so they, they continue to try to use this calf. And uh, the, the fifth verse to me, is is actually really funny in a dark kind of way. <laughs> sometimes we get the impression that God doesn't have a sense of humor, and I think it's because we don't know how to read the Bible. There are there are passages in the Bible that, to me, are just very very funny, just the, 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 just witty, you know, in a very piercing kind of way. I've talked before about that passage in uh, in Titus where Paul talks about you know that that uh, uh, one of the poets there in Crete had said that. They are evil beasts, liars, and slow bellies. And Paul says, very, very matter-of-factly, this witness is true. <laughs> it, was, it was the case that they were <laughs> evil beasts and liars and slow bellies. Well, anyway, this, this first part of chapter, or verse 5, chapter 8, verse 5, to me is really funny. It says, thy calf, O Samaria, hath cast thee off. <laughs> In other words, you wanted to ride the calf, but the calf's going to buck you. <laughs> because you can't, you can't ride that calf where you think it's going to take you. They thought that the calf would bring them prosperity and that he would protect them from their enemies and so on. And uh, what God tells them, you put your faith in the wrong animal because that calf's going to buck and it won't do for you what you think it will. 
he says, of their silver and their gold have they made them idols that they may be cut off. Thy calf, O Samaria, hath cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? And uh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? He says, how long is it going to take them to be innocent? Now, that word innocency is very interesting there because he's not asking how long it will take them to reform or to turn over a new leaf. How long is it going to take them to get rid of their calf and turn back to me and clean things up? The question is, how long will it be till they're innocent? And the fact of the matter is that even if they were to take their calf and throw it in the creek right now, they still wouldn't be innocent, would they? Because the crime of making that calf would still be on their account. And so this is one of those deep probing questions in the Old Testament that even though the people at the time might not have known it, actually points to the New Testament because the real answer to this question is that there's no way to obtain innocency except by the blood of Christ. You have to have a substitute. In the Old Testament days, God had given them a system of sacrifices where they used bulls and calves and goats and lambs and so on. And that would cover their sin. But it never made them innocent. Well, it just covered it for a while. And you have to look forward to the time when Christ comes to find the point when uh, sin is finally put away for good and you're entirely innocent. Now, they've gone so far that instead of um, bringing bulls that you can kill, bulls that you can kill to the uh, temple to sacrifice them, now they've got their calf that can't even shed any blood. <laughs> and what good is a calf that can't shed any blood? Because the whole point of the sacrificial system was substitutionary blood. And so he says they're so far from innocency that they can't even see it from where they are. You understand what I'm saying? They, with, with the temple system that God had given them and the system of sacrifices in Leviticus, a man couldn't obtain innocence from that, but at least it was a picture that directed them toward the one who would come and make it possible for them to be innocent. He says, you're going the other direction. <laughs> You've gone the wrong way. You're getting further away instead of closer. He goes on in verse 6, says, For from Israel was it also, the workman made it. Therefore it is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. And I don't know if you have a place anywhere in the Bible where you have a more succinct explanation of what is wrong with idolatry. He says there, did you catch that? The workman made it, therefore it is not God. <laughs> right? <laughs> if you made it with your own hands, it can't be God, can it? Yeah. And uh, so that's... Let's turn over here to the book of Romans. I know we've looked at this passage before, but it's worth looking at again right now in the first chapter of the book of Romans <clears throat> where he talks about the uh, sin of idolatry. Uh, let's pick up in chapter 1, verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They change the glory of God into an image, a, a picture of something that wasn't the real thing. And uh, the, the point there is that it should have been obvious to them that the Creator is greater than the thing that is created. So if you made something with your own hands, then... How can that be greater than you? He says there in verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. And what a, what a wonderful description that is of really what all sin is, isn't it? Worshiping the creature more than the creator. How does a person's heart get so deluded that you can make an image with your own hands and then somehow believe that that image is greater than you are? Well, it really takes a lot of blindness from Satan to be able to do that, doesn't it? 
I want to turn over here for just a second to a passage in Isaiah in the 44th chapter that uh, probably, it's a fairly lengthy passage, and uh, I'm going to read here quite a bit because this is probably the, the greatest takedown of idolatry in the whole Bible. I said the one in Hosea is probably the, the briefest or most succinct and most clear, but this passage in Isaiah chapter 44 is much longer, but it is such a powerful thing to describe why idol worship is so silly. It says in verse 9, They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit, and they are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. Right? The idol can't see anything. <laughs> it can't know anything. The idol doesn't even know it's supposed to be ashamed. Should be the person who makes it who's ashamed, right? Who hath formed a god or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing. Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together, let them stand up, yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals, and fashioneth it with hammers, and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water, and is faint. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule, he marketh it out with a line, he fitteth it with planes, and he marketh it out with a compass, and maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall be it, it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it, and breaketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god, and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image, and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire, with part thereof he eateth flesh, he roasteth roast, and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself, and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my god. They have not known nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding, to say, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? He feedeth on ashes, a deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? He talks about all the labor that these people go to to make a god. We have this smith down there fashioning it, and he's hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water. And this god he's making doesn't seem to be able to help him or provide him with any water or anything to eat. It doesn't do him any good at all. He's wasting out all his strength to produce this thing that can't do anything at all. We have carpenters that are measuring and cutting to make this figure. Even at one point it talks about they're planting trees specifically to grow up into idols. And can you imagine that, planting a tree maybe that wouldn't even grow in your lifetime, but you're going to teach your son how to be a carpenter so he'll know one day how to take that tree and make this out of it. They're taking this wood, some of it, and burning it evidently from this passage, it seems like they would burn the wood and either make idols out of the ashes or maybe whatever part didn't burn, they would consider that something sacred and they make an idol out of what was left over after the fire. And it never seems to occur to them how silly all this is. That's what it says at the end of the passage, is there not a lie in my right hand? Said that their, their minds, their hearts couldn't understand that this whole thing was a lie. How in the world could you make a thing and then pray to it? it? There is one thing that ought to be very clear. It's that the creature ought to worship the Creator and not the other way around. But they've got the whole thing turned upside down in their heads. And that's what Hosea says there in chapter 8, verse 6. The workman made it, therefore it is not God. <laughs> if you make it, it can't be God. Because one of the things that defines God as he is the one who made you and not the other way around. We see things like that in some of the like Native American sure. things like that. And how would you equate that 
to like some of the great works of art from the medieval period, you know, like Da Vinci and yeah. Michelangelo and all that. I mean, I don't know that anybody actually worshiped those things. <laughs> well, that, that raises a whole other interesting question when you talk about that because, um, first of all, I think it is fair to say that Christianity, and I use that term very loosely here, I'm not necessarily talking about the true born-again church, but I'm talking about churches or, or entities that call themselves Christians, have not at all been immune from drifting toward idolatry at times. Uh, and, and, and by that I mean that they um, take certain objects that have been made by men, and if they don't exactly call them God, they give, give them a certain veneration that is not given in the Scripture. And uh, that that certainly has happened in the history of the so-called church, right? And still happens today um, with great frequency. And beyond worshiping man-made things, there has been the, some tendency to drift into the worship of people who shouldn't be worshipped. For example, the Roman Catholic Church with the case of Mary. Uh, and there's nothing in the Scripture at all that indicates we ought to worship her. We ought to respect her. <laughs> she, she was a good girl. She did a wonderful thing, and she's, she's very much worthy of our respect and admiration, but not our worship. And she had to be saved just like anybody else did. Uh, she was not, as the, the Catholics claim, that she was born without sin. And uh, that's actually what a, a lot of Protestants and Baptists and people don't understand that, that when the Catholics talk about the Immaculate Conception, they're not talking about the conception of Christ. They're talking about the conception of Mary because they believe she was conceived without sin, and that's why she was able to bear Christ. Well, that's the deep question. <laughs> or, 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 or the better the question than that is, like if, if, if Mary had to be born without sin to preserve Christ from sin, wouldn't Mary's mother also have had to have been? And, you know, it's turtles all the way down, right? Yeah, right. We're still going to build this and, great thing to and, and, what, and what has happened out of that, what, what you saw around that period of time was the beginning of something that has come to full fruition now. Mm-hmm. And that is that we have arrived at a state where humanity itself is worshipped. The people of this age have, in a sense, thrown off God because they think of themselves as gods. And I think that's the full fruition of the devil's plan to try to corrupt humanity. Actually, I've said here before, I think the greatest false religion in the world is not Islam or Buddhism or anything like that. It's worship of self. And he's pretty well achieved that in our world today, hasn't he? And so when you do that, works of art by the Renaissance masters or by people still today, in a sense, they become idols. Because if they're held up as the ideal of what humanity is supposed to be, then they become idols. Now, it's a very dangerous game to play. And this may set us up for uh, the uh, the next verse. Actually, is that um, what happens when you start to make idols out of men? Is that if your concept of what the ideal is, the ideal of man is, then your old idols get cast down and broken, and you lift up new ones. And <laughs> frankly, that ought to scare a lot of people in this world today that are trying to tear down all of history, really? Is that a good way to put it? Uh, <clears throat> all the people in history who have been held as sort of ideals are trying to get them out of the way because they do not conform to this moment's standard of ideal morality. And some of them ought to take a minute and think about what the next generation might think of them because somebody's going to come tear down your statue someday. <laughs> right? <laughs> if... Yeah. They was, it always irritates me if I watch historical some drama or read a book and they put like something that person would never say because they belong to a different time. Yeah. And that's just not how they thought. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's a real problem because we've got, um, so we've got 
two competing schools of thought. It's, it's a lot more than that, but this is kind of an oversimplification. We've got in this world people who believe that right and wrong and morals are settled throughout all time, which would be the position of anybody who's a serious Bible believer and a believer in God, that morals are set by God and not by man. And then we have other people who believe that morals may change as society changes. These are the sort of people who believe in a living constitution, by the way. <laughs> that, yeah, your truth. And, uh, and it, it is a very strange sort of thing. I mean, most of them don't come right out and say this, but it's a strange sort of thing to, thing to think that what's moral today might not be moral 10 years from now. They think that they are right because, the, the, what is the expression, that history is on their side? Well, what if history is not on your side anymore? I mean, yeah, when you stop and think about this a while, <laughs> if the Nazis had won, would history be on their side and they'd be right? Yes. Is that, is that where we're going with this? You know? Yeah. And sooner or later, history, the arc of history, will bend away from your position and, and uh, you won't have anything to rest on then. That's what happens when, when we make men idols. It's not as much different from golden calves as we might like to think sometimes. We haven't advanced that far, have we? Because anything that's set above God is an idol in the end. And uh, anything that is held up as a standard instead of God, anything that's worshipped is set up as a standard is an idol. Well, in verse 7, the end of, I don't know if I read all of verse 6 there, it says the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. God's going to throw down their idol. And the explanation for that is in verse 7, which is one of the most memorable passages in, in this whole book. It says, for they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It hath no stalk. The bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, the strangers shall swallow it up. And so we have this very poetic expression. They have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. Now, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> they shall sow. <laughs> yeah, this is pretty important. Um, there is in the Bible a general principle of sowing and reaping. And the most ex famous expression of that, of course, is in the book of Galatians where it says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And it mentions in that passage, uh, you can either sow to the flesh or sow to the spirit. And uh, if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption, it says, of the flesh. Well, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And it might also be worth mentioning as we pass by that if you sow and things go as you hope they will, you'll, you'll reap a great deal more than what you sowed. <laughs> well, what we find here is they sow the wind. <laughs> They're going to reap a great deal more wind than what they sowed. What is, what is the wind that they are sowing? There are a, a few different things in the Scripture that you might look at that give some indication of this. One of the ways the word wind might be used is in the scripture is as a reference to something that passes over all nations. The winds come from the east, they come from the west, they come from wherever. They come from the south, they come from the north. Sometimes invading armies are referred to as winds and so on and things like that. The idea is that the wind can cover a lot of ground. It can move a long way, can it? It can carry a rumor from the north and so on and so forth. Especially in that day where uh, the fastest mode of travel that anybody had was the fastest horse they could find. A wind could cover a lot more ground than a man could, couldn't it? And the idea of a wind, I think, had to do with the fact that they were receiving things into their land that had come from far off. And I think that makes sense if you think about the context of what's co coming next in this chapter. This maybe will make more sense after we read the next few verses. But there's going to be a, a lot of discussion in the next few verses about their dealings with Assyria. And so the idea here is that this nation, which was supposed to be a city set up on a hill, I think, that's a New Testament expression, but I think it certainly applies to what God intended Israel to be, this unique nation on the earth that was set apart to himself that uh, would represent him before all the world and all the other nations we're supposed to look to Israel to see what was right and wrong. That was God's idea for them. They were supposed to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. Now, we know that that passage ultimately is a prophecy of Christ because 
Israel never did do that. But ideally that's what Israel was supposed to be, a light to lighten the Gentiles. And yet instead of uh, demonstrating the worship of Jehovah to the rest of the world so that the rest of the world could see them and come to worship Jehovah, they're starting to drag into themselves all the ungodly false worship that all the other nations had. Where did they get the idea to make a calf? Didn't come from God. The wind blew it in, <laughs> right? They were doing it somewhere else and the wind blew it in. And that wind can be awfully deceitful because uh, who doesn't like a cool breeze, right? Sometimes that wind's carrying things you don't want. And the wind was carrying things in on them that were going to corrupt them. It was bringing idol worship from the north and from the south. They were looking at kingdoms like Egypt and Assyria, and they saw their mighty power, and they said, why can't we be more like them? This afflicted the northern and the southern kingdom to some degree. Uh, I've preached on here before, I think, that uh, altar that King Ahaz had made. Where did he figure out how to make that altar? He went up to Damascus in Syria, and he saw their altar, and he liked it better than the one they had in Jerusalem, I guess decided I'd like to have one of those. And the wind starts blowing things in. They start to see what other nations are doing, things that appeal to them, and they think if the other nations are prospering and becoming strong, why shouldn't we be like that? And they start to sow that. That's the seed that they're sowing now. God had instructed them to teach their children in His ways. They were supposed to make their children study the Word of God, to study His law. Get those things in their hearts. But by this time, there aren't too many people in this northern kingdom who are teaching their children the ways of God. Almost none at all. Do you know what they're sowing in their fields? They're sowing the wind. <laughs> they're sowing what the wind blew in. And so what God says here is, okay, you sow the wind. You're going to reap the whirlwind. You like the way the Assyrians do it? <laughs> you're going to get a real close look at how the Assyrians do it. Because the Assyrians are going to come here and all those things that the wind blew in that you liked, the whirlwind is now going to scatter you all over the world. And you'll see firsthand what all these other nations are doing. You won't have to drag it in and have to grow it here anymore because the whirlwind is no place for sowing, is it? As a matter of fact, there's scripture that talks about that, about... Uh, a person who observes the wind is not going, you can't sow in a wind. <laughs> You're just scattering seed, all your seed will blow away. And you certainly can't sow in a whirlwind. When the whirlwind comes, if you throw your seed out, you're just wasting your seed. And uh, over here in the book of Zechariah, chapter 7, verse 14, I think it, it gives us very exactly what it is that God was talking about with this whirlwind. It says, But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them, that no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. That's what the whirlwind is. The whirlwind that they're going to reap is the wind that scatters them among all nations. And they have been scattered among all nations and never have returned. Now some have returned, but the nation as a whole has not returned to her land after the whirlwind. And he says the reason they got the whirlwind is because they sowed the wind. There are consequences to the things you do. They had no root. One of the places that wind is famously used in the Bible is in the book of Ephesians in the fourth chapter where it talks about people blown around, blown about with every wind of doctrine. And why were they blown about with every wind of doctrine? Because they had no root. They hadn't uh, sowed the right things, right? Because the things that the devil would have you sow, the things that the wind blows in don't have any roots. They won't, they won't hold too good when the wind blows. There are some plants that set their roots in very deep. There are certain types of trees that can uh, put their roots in dozens of feet into the ground. And you find some of these especially in areas that have high winds because the wind can't blow them down. But there are some trees that have hardly any root at all. And I, uh, <laughs> I, and it's kind of surprising. There was a tree that blew down back on the hill behind the house there a few years ago. A big old uh, red oak tree. 
I mean, a big one. It was probably close to 100 feet tall. And the wind blew it over, and it pulled up the whole root ball. And the root ball was maybe only 10 feet wide. And it was, it was just sort of an amazing thing to look at because, it, you know, it, it really looked like something on the top. But there wasn't any root. How was it standing? And people are like that. Churches are like that. Nations are like that. A lot showing on the top, but the roots aren't very good. And when the wind comes, it won't stand. It's so important that you get your roots settled in the right place. Uh, we've talked here some about that passage in the book of Ephesians before, about how important it is to get people settled on sound doctrine. Because let me tell you, there's a lot of false doctrine blowing in the wind these days. And if you start to sow that, you're going to build churches that have a lot of show, but no stability. Yeah, and we see that a lot in the, in the world today right now, don't we? we? We have all these big churches that blow up overnight and then they blow out. <laughs> because there wasn't anything really there. There was no stability, and so the whirlwind comes, and they're gone. Well, that's what happens when you sow the wind. The, the, uh, if you start building people up on a doctrine that is not built on the grace of God and the blood of Christ, if it's built on what man can do or how good a show we can put on or whatever like that, listen, the time's going to come when somebody else is going to find something more appealing to give them. If they, and if they haven't been genuinely born again, if they haven't been changed on the inside, then all those old things are going to appeal to them and somebody else can tear the thing down. It happens on a national level. I think probably if we'd be honest about our country today, we've done a lot of sowing the wind. I, uh, it, it, it astonishes me about our country, really. And it probably shouldn't, I guess, <laughs> knowing what we know from human nature and from the Bible. But when you think about how successful and prosperous this nation was for so long and now seems determined to get rid of all the values and morals that that prosperity was built on, it's almost like a national suicide, isn't it? And isn't it very strange how in this country for the last 50 or 60 years especially, among a certain class of people, there's been this obsession with the idea that other nations are doing things so much better than we are and we need to drag in their ways of doing things. And sometimes in economic or, or financial matters about how to manage our uh, economic system, sometimes in religious matters. I mean, before the late 60s, for example, Buddhism and all this New Age stuff was almost unknown in the United States. And then the Beatles and a bunch of other people go over to meet with uh, their Indian religious leaders and drag this stuff over here, and now we've got all this stuff ingrained into the culture. I mean, in 1960, you would have had a hard time finding an American who knew what karma or yoga or any of those things were, and now they've entered into the culture. And we've learned all this sort of new age stuff, and it's corrupted our thinking a lot more than we realize. We have adopted all this into ourselves, uh, and that stuff is directly counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because all of that Eastern religion, all that stuff, is built on the idea that you are essentially good and that you are a part of the one or a part of God. And that is as contrary to the doctrine of Scripture as anything you can imagine. Anything that is teaching you that you are basically good or have any sort of worth in yourself apart from Christ is a doctrine that cannot be compatible with the Word of God in any way, shape, or form. And it's dangerous. But it's drifted into the church, hasn't it? I'm amazed these days how much is taught in church or how much church people say, what sort of little slogans they post on social media and things like that, that directly contradict the Word of God. Well, the wind blew it in. That's where it came from. And if you sow the wind, eventually you'll reap the whirlwind. We... <laughs> How, I don't know why in the world, in our nation, with the way God has blessed us and the prosperity we had in this country, we would look at other countries that were less prosperous or in worse shape and think, hey, we've got to start to adopt their ideas. Yeah. It doesn't make sense, does it? But you sow the wind. And what the wind blows in eventually becomes the whirlwind.
that blows you away. And I think we have a real risk of that in this country these days. The, the, the foundations, the roots of our country have been deeply eroded in the last few decades. And uh, we stand in a position very much like Israel did at this time. And so what it says there is that it hath no stalk, the bud shall yield no meal, if so be it yield, the stranger shall swallow it up. You, you can't grow crops in the whirlwind, right? And uh, if you try to grow crops in places where there are severe winds, it just becomes almost impossible to, to do that. Uh, it, most plants can't survive at all. The ones that do are not the sort of plants you could use for food. And he says, this is what's coming upon this country. Now, verse 8, it says, Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the Gentiles as a vessel wherein is no pleasure. Right, speaking again of the fact that they're going to be scattered among all the nations. And uh, really, it's going to, they're going to begin to live like the Gentile nations, even though they will remain a distinct people. They're going to start to behave like them and act like them to a great extent. As a vessel wherein is no pleasure. Now remember, he had set Israel apart as his own people, and they were the apple of his eye. But he says he can't take pleasure in them anymore. He goes on and says in verse 9, and this is the fourth charge against them. <clears throat> For they are gone up to Assyria, a wild ass alone by himself. Ephraim hath hired lovers. Yea, though they have hired among the nations, now will I gather them, for they shall sorrow a little for the burden of the king of princes. He, uh, the fourth complaint is that they have turned to other nations for their help instead of turning to God. And that's what, it talks, what it's talking about there when it says they've gone up to Assyria and they've hired lovers. Now remember, the, the image in this book is of Israel as the wife of Jehovah. And the idea there is that the wife is supposed to look to her husband for her protection. But he says they hired the Assyrians to protect them. And if you read the story about what actually went on, long before the Assyrians conquered them, uh, they were paying tribute money to the Assyrians for their protection. There were concerns about other nations like Egypt or whoever coming up against them. And what sets the stage for their eventual uh, conquest by the Assyrians is that they begin to... Uh, begin to buck against the demands for tribute money. And so that's the idea there. He says, and this connects with the idea of sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind, doesn't it? He says you paid them for your protection. But what happens when you stop paying? <laughs> when you're not willing to pay anymore. And that's what following after the devil's agenda will always do. The devil will always bring you to a place where you don't want to pay his price anymore. But you can't stop paying. That's what he does. And this is why you need the protection of God in your life. That's the, the only one who can deliver for you from that, who can deliver you from the power of darkness and translate you into the kingdom of his dear son is Jesus Christ. That's why we need him so very much. But he says they have uh, they've been unfaithful. They, they went and hired lovers, and uh, they hired among the nations, and so he's going to gather them, and they'll sorrow a little bit for the burden of the king of princes. Now, again, this is, this is a bit of a funny expression, because um, the kings of Assyria had a habit of styling themselves, and this is a familiar expression if you're a Bible reader, but they like to call themselves the king of kings, which was a title that should not have belonged to themselves, but because they had conquered so many kings, they like to call themselves king of kings. Now we know that that title properly belongs to Christ, and when he comes he'll call himself king of kings and lord of lords. Well, Hosea, who seems to be a fairly witty fellow, calls him not the king of kings, but the king of princes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> And so he says that they're going to have this uh, burden. What is the burden of the king of princes? That is the tribute money they have to pay, because they're caught up in this protection racket now. And he says, well, I'm just going to let them sorrow a little over it. <laughs> he says, I'm not, I'm not going to bail them out this time. You're just going to have to pay the price. He goes, God's version of tough love. That's right, yeah. He says, you've put yourself in this position, and you won't turn back to me, so you go ahead and sorrow a little over it. Because Ephraim hath made many altars to sin, altars shall be unto him to sin. See, you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. They wanted all these altars. He said, I'll scatter you all around the world. You'll find all the false altars you can handle in all these false nations. But you won't find any joy there. 
because you wouldn't stay where you were supposed to have been. I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. That might be the saddest verse in the whole chapter. He said, I gave you my law, I gave you my word, but you thought, they were, you thought it was strange. We're going to see more about that in the next chapter. It's going to talk about how uh, the uh, prophet of God was a fool and the spiritual man was mad. That's what they thought of Hosea. When the prophet came down, they said he was a fool and he was a madman. And that's the way the world reacts to the Word of God today for the most part, isn't it? Do you know, do you know that it is a fact that if you took out all the spiritual part, I guess you might call it, of the Word of God, and just had the instructions about how to live life the right way, we'd have, and people lived by that, we'd have a much better world than we do now. People wouldn't be saved. But, but there's a great deal of sanity in the Word of God, isn't it? And isn't it crazy how sanity seems so strange to people? I remember one time reading an article about a man who had asked a friend who had studied psychology to study what the Bible says about Jesus Christ to see if he was crazy or why he acted so strange and so different from everybody else. And the man concluded that he was the only sane man that had ever lived. He <laughs> was the only man that was really balanced and didn't have all sorts of psychosis and neurosis and that sort of thing. But in a world that's evil, morality seems strange. To people who have no vision of God, who have not read His Word, who have not understood about His mercy and grace, to get rid of their calf makes them seem odd. They don't fit in with all the people around them. And peer pressure is such a powerful force, isn't it? People are scared to death to be different. I think that's a part of what's behind all the people who want America to come into conformity with what they do in other nations. It's just they, they, uh, they feel embarrassed that we're different. Well, let me tell you something. If you want to be godly in this world, you've got to be different. <laughs> you, can't, you can't be normal in the eyes of this world and be godly. And so... They had thought that his law was a strange thing. They counted it strange. It, well, I guess this word of God is a strange thing to somebody who has not understood what it means. To someone who has worshipped a golden calf, they can't understand what God is like. It says, They sacrifice flesh for the sacrifices of mine offerings, and eat it. But the Lord accepteth them not. Now will he remember their iniquity and visit their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel hath forgotten his maker, and buildeth temples. And Judah hath multiplied fenced cities, but I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour the palaces thereof. He gets into this thing we've talked about some before about the false religion of the people. Because, and this is, this is part of the great tragedy of the whole thing, is that a lot of these people seem to have genuinely believed that they were serving God. They were making sacrifices. They were coming to a temple and making sacrifices. It was the wrong temple. But they were eating of the sacrifices. And if you remember when we studied about the sacrifices in the Old Testament, for a person who came and made an offering to partake of that offering was an important picture of fellowship with God. And they thought they still had this. They were lying to themselves. And he said, the Lord won't accept it. He says, they're going to return to Egypt. Now, that is, uh, that is an interesting expression, and we'll see more of that in the next chapter. Uh, it because if you're uh, familiar with what happened next, they don't actually go to Egypt, right? <laughs> uh, now, there were, uh, when the Babylonian captivity came upon the southern kingdom, there were some people who did go to Egypt, especially some of the elite class. Jeremiah warned him not to do that, and he ended up getting dragged into the whole thing and, and, and getting stuck down there himself. But this wasn't the case with the northern kingdom. But the, the point that he's making here is um, not so much that they're going to go to the land of Egypt, but he's calling their mind to the fact that they were once in captivity in Egypt. He says, you were in captivity, you're going back to captivity. Because you want to live like this, if you won't obey me, he says, now think about the whole thing works. We're talking again about this covenant marriage between Israel and his people. The covenant marriage is made when he brings them out of Egypt. He takes them to Mount Sinai, and that's where... The covenant is made. And he says, you don't want to obey my covenant? 
You haven't obeyed my covenant. You've set up kings for yourselves. You've worshiped idols. You've turned to other nations for your help. All these things you weren't supposed to do. He says, fine, you broke the law. You go back where I found you. Put you back into captivity. For Israel hath forgotten his maker. Buildeth temples. Isn't that something? They're still building temples. But they forgot who told them to build the temples in the first place. They weren't supposed to be building any temples. The temple was in Jerusalem. They're building temples in other places. Judah hath multiplied fenced cities. Down there in Judah, they're <clears throat> getting themselves walled up because they're afraid of the enemy that's coming. And they're going to protect themselves. And uh, we've got people living like that today in the church. They're trying to protect themselves from what's coming. Well, what's coming is a judgment from God. And there is no place in this earth where you can hide from the judgment of God except in Jesus Christ. That's the only defense there is. Oh, what a precious thing that that defense exists. What a place to be. I don't know how anybody would want to be anywhere else. I was <clears throat> talking to somebody just yesterday about uh, some folks who have uh, gotten into some of this doctrine that's popular now about how the church is going to go through the tribulation period. I don't know if you know this. This is growing all around us. And uh, <clears throat> a lot of people are sort of adopting this doctrine that the church will have to go through all or part of the tribulation. And uh, so they're preparing for this. They're, they're, they're building their bunkers and putting up their they're building their bunkers and putting up their canned foods and their bottles of water and so on. They can't give up the idea that they can protect themselves. That's right. They're trying to protect themselves. And to be very honest with you, it, knowing that I'm born again, I don't know if I were in the tribulation period that I'd be desperate to keep living. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Do you understand? I mean, I, I, that may sound crazy, but... And if you know... Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and there's a big, if you see anybody that's making this argument, there's, there's several things that you can notice are wrong, but let me give you just this one real quick and we'll, we'll close. One of the arguments they're making is that those of us who don't believe or that the church will go through the tribulation are not preparing the church for the persecution that is to come. And that is a straw man argument. Because nobody who believes in a pre-tribulational rapture is arguing that the church won't have to go through tribulation or per, through persecution. It has ever since we started. It's going on now, all over the world. They're confusing tribulation with persecution, and the tribulation is the wrath of God. God never told us that we'd be safe from persecution. As a matter of fact, He told us we would endure it if we live godly in this world. We will have trouble, but. What he did tell us is that we do not have to suffer the wrath of God. And the reason we will not suffer any part of the wrath of God is because Christ also suffered the wrath, already suffered the wrath of God at Calvary. If he were to put the church through any of the wrath of God, he would be saying that Christ's suffering at Calvary was not sufficient to pay for that. And that's the wonder of it all is that Christ is our refuge because he suffered the wrath of God in our place. And see, that's what he's saying. You can build all the fenced cities you want. They were building fenced cities down there to try to protect themselves. When the wrath of God comes, it doesn't matter how big your fence is. The only place you can be is in Jesus Christ. And thank God that he's given us a place of refuge. Well, we'll stop there for tonight. Well,